Welcome back, students, and thank you for tuning in to the first Wired podcast of the semester and the school year. I'm just giving some background context to those students who haven't been with us last year or for those um, new Broncos joining us on campus. The Wired podcast is a collaboration between the Western Student Association, which is our student government on campus, and our very own um, wider um, media group on campus um, that assists student groups and different organizations to get the word out, make it entertaining for students on campus and have overall um, great discussions. And so with this collaboration, we've felt a stronger bond between our different organizations and departments while also educating, serving, um, and helping students and advocating for them through these avenues. Um, so we wanted to kind of keep the ball rolling this year because we saw really good turnout last year. Um, so without further ado, we're gonna hop into the first discussion of the semester, which is super exciting. And I have some special guests with us for this discussion. But first, um, we're gonna go into introductions. I'm gonna introduce myself. My voice may sound really familiar for you all. Um, last year, I served as a student body president for Western, um, had a lot of fun doing that, but now I'm serving as the uh, graduate assistant for the Lewis Walker Institute for the study of race and ethnic relations. Um, so I'll be working with them all year, um, helping out students and all of that fun jazz. Um, I have with me Reverend Millard Southern and Dr. Santiago. He just dipped out, but he'll hop back in, maybe some technical difficulties. But um, Reverend Millard Southern, do you want to give um, a quick introduction about yourself, kind of giving an introduction about what our um, podcast is going to talk about today regarding faith and community. And then when um, Dr. Santiago hops back in here, he can introduce himself. We can get the ball rolling. Sure, sure. Hi, everyone. And thank you, Miss uh, West, for the opportunity to uh, speak to the students. Once again, my name is Reverend Miller Southern. I'm a first year PhD student in the Department of English at Western Michigan University. I'm also the senior pastor at the historic Allen Chapel AME Church, located on the north side of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I want to welcome you to an exciting podcast series centered around faith and community. Now, in these lively discussions, we want to share, discuss, and basically interrogate issues of identity, culture, and social justice that are centered around um, and within the context of faith and community. So that in the end, we might gain some insight and critical understanding of just how important faith and community is. Um, the first podcast will deal with the historical lessons on the church, faith, and community. The second podcast will uh, concentrate on faith leaders' perspective on the intersection of faith and community. And our third part podcast, we will uh, hear students' perspectives on faith. Um, how do they use faith to empower advocacy in the community? But joining us with me today on this first podcast um, is Dr. W.F. Santiago Valles, who is a brilliant, a truly brilliant uh, professor, scholar, and, and quite honestly, um, a world-renowned lecturer. And so I'm happy to have him with us. Dr. Santiago, can you first begin by just uh, telling me a little bit about yourself 
um, your research and your uh, your trips to Descartes Synagogue. Um, I would love to hear about that. Uh, I'm, I'm from Puerto Rico and I uh, studied in Puerto Rico in the United States, in Mexico and in Canada. I've been a university professor in Puerto Rico, in Canada, in Spain, uh, and in the United States, as well as in uh, West Africa. I also am part of an international research team at the National Institute of History in Havana, Cuba. And I've lived in, in Europe, in Africa, in Central and South America, as well as in the Caribbean and in North America. Uh, my work in Senegal has to do with three uh, issues. One is I uh, teach in the graduate school at the uh, National University in the uh, African Studies Laboratory. I also lecture in the graduate program in the philosophy department. Uh, I'm also involved with a study abroad uh, course, the, the one research-based uh, study abroad course at the local public university uh, that involves professors from three different uh, colleges, uh, as well as uh, graduate and undergraduate students. Uh, it's a six-credit course, and the, the next time we do it, it will also be available to uh, uh, school teachers and interested uh, private citizens from uh, Michigan and Illinois and in Indiana. Uh, the third thing we do in Senegal is that we uh, run a uh, scholarship program at a private school in the largest uh, neighborhood of uh, concentrated impoverishment in the outskirts of the uh, capital city. And that particular school uh, for the last 10, 15 years has always had the highest entrance exam grade for uh, prospective university students. And we fund uh, nine students whose uh, economic conditions does not allow them to uh, pay for their fees at this school or uh, pay for their fees at the National University. Wow, so you're quite active and busy in the intellectual community and thank you for that. Now, I'm curious to know about your experiences traveling abroad, especially to Senegal. And what I wanna discuss is what, what is the role of religion uh, for people of faith in Africa, um, is it primarily Christian or is it Islam? And um, historically speaking, what has been the role of, of religion um, as you see it, as you have, and as you have, have observed while traveling to Senegal? Well, first of all, there, there were Christians in Africa uh, before there were Christians in, in Europe. There were, there were Christians in uh, what is currently uh, Algeria and, and Morocco and Tunisia and, and Egypt and in, in Ethiopia long, long before there were uh, Christians in 
in uh, Greece or in uh, Spain or in France or in Germany, the 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 com- large Christian communities on on the Mediterranean or in North Africa, as well as in Ethiopia, and uh, the uh, uh, the Arab merchants who were Muslims uh, began uh, traveling to to Africa in around the 700s, the 600s, excuse me, from 650 to. 750 in the Christian based calendar, <clears throat> and they uh, organized uh, trading routes and also uh, warehouses, much the same way that capitalism spread in, in Europe since the ninth uh, century. And in most of the countries where uh, my, my wife and I have, have uh, worked, Mali and Senegal. I've also lived in in Algeria and in Ethiopia and in Tanzania and Kenya, <coughs> as well as in Ghana and, and Liberia. In most of those countries, the majority of the population is the uh, followers of the Islamic uh, faith and the Islamic traditions and way of life. In Senegal specifically, the Christians make up uh, about two or three percent of the population, and the Muslims make up over ninety-five percent of the population, and the animists make up the remainder, uh, two or three percent. And and is Islam, unlike Christianity, Islam is not uh, a group of ideas that you uh, believe in or a group of of ideas that you commit to. But Islam is is a way of life, and it is Islam organizes your your life from the minute you wake up till the minute you go to bed, and and you demonstrate that you're a Muslim by the way you organize your your life every day, as opposed to preaching on Sunday morning. Wider FM is the student-run radio station at Western Michigan University. Along with the Western Herald and Western Herald Video, Wider is part of the WMU Student Media Group and is supported in part through generous donations from listeners like you. If you would like to join this list of generous donors, please click the donate button at widrfm.org and support our mission for radio evolution. The website once again, widrfm.org. On your radio at 89.1 Wider FM. Wow, that's great. No, that's great. And um, as you have traveled abroad, and especially in Africa and um, in Senegal, did you see a deeper understanding of different faith traditions living together and coming together and kind of working together? What did you observe in in that regard? Well, the... uh... In this particular country that we're discussing, Senegal is one of 54 countries in Africa, and each one of them has a different historical uh, context and a different set of, of conflicts that organize uh, that, that history and their, the uh, nations within that uh, country are, are distinct and particular to every one of those 54 or 55 
five uh, countries. But in in uh, Senegal, there are uh, Muslims of four different congregations. There are uh, Christians from Lebanon and expatriates from uh, France, as well as Africans who are who are, who are Christians. And their uh, ecumenical approach and peace uh, and and respectful approach means that you observe the holidays. Everybody in the country observes the holidays of the Christians, the holidays of the Muslims, and within the uh, Christians, they observe the holidays of the Protestants as well as the holidays of the Catholics in, in order to make sure that, that peaceful coexistence is, is practiced on a daily basis. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, I want to talk about, the next thing I want to talk about is the transatlantic slave trade. Now, can you set that up for me historically? So how was, how was Senegal involved in the slave trade? And where did, those, where did those enslaved Africans go to different parts of the world? Um, and then how did the transatlantic slave trade influence Christianity? or vice versa. Can you set that up for me? Uh, slavery began in Europe, inside Europe, in around the 900s of the Christian calendar. During that 10th century, people were forced to work for free against their wishes. And in, in their own uh, places of origin and as well as being sold to uh, other territories across the European continent. And that meant that uh, people who were Romanian and Russian and uh, Albanian and uh, Czechoslovakian uh, were, were sold to other people in, in Europe, in, in Italy, in Spain, in France, in Germany, and in what is currently called uh, shrinking Great Britain. Uh, and there had to be some way to justify it, not not just uh, in terms of the religion <coughs> of the people there, but also legally and politically. How do, how do you justify force establishing such a a reign of, of organized violence that forces people to work for free against their wishes. <coughs> so this this contraption called race was invented and that was done by focusing on on difference differences in physical features, differences in language, differences in places of, of origin, and differences in, in trade and craft. <coughs> So that people from Eastern Europe, from the areas that, uh, where Slavs uh, came from, again, uh, Albania, the Balkans, uh, Russians, etc., from the Caucasus, uh, were, were considered to be people of, of races that were not uh, Europeans and thus slavery could be justified legally and justified ethically as, as well as, as 
using quotes from the Old Testament and the New Testament in, in the religious uh, communities. Uh, around the, the 14th century, the 13th and the 14th century, uh, the, the Europeans, uh, after the Crusades, in order to steal the land of the uh, Muslims who controlled uh, Palestine, uh, the the Europeans needed to uh, to get uh, to uh, to Asia to China concretely through routes other than uh, the Silk Road, which was by then controlled by the uh, the Muslims, whether in Syria or in in Turkey or in or in Egypt or in Iraq. They, they control the the access to trade with China, so the Europeans were compelled to find other routes, and they uh, started uh, in Portugal and in Spain trying to go uh, around Africa, and and thus they uh, also considered that it was a good idea to to trade for African slaves in order to supply the the labor force in the colonies of the new world in this in this process 5% of the uh, people of african origin who were who were kidnapped against their wishes and forced to work for free against their wishes only 5% of those were brought to the united states and the other 95% were taken first to uh, the caribbean since since 1504 to what is now called the Dominican Republic and to Cuba and to Puerto Rico uh, and to Haiti and later to Central and South America. So if if all you know about is the 5% of the people of African origin who were brought to the United States, if, if that's all you know about, you do not know very much about the African diaspora, that is, people who were forcefully displaced, mostly to the Caribbean, where the majority of the people in every island in the Caribbean are people of African origin, to South America, uh, specifically Brazil, which has the largest population of people of African origin, uh, except one country. There's only one country in Africa that has more black people than Brazil. Uh, other countries like Colombia and Venezuela, which have a 40-50% of the population of African origin, as well as countries in Central America that have between 5 and 15% people of African origin. And, and that's, that's how the slave trade was organized. It was organized by uh, taking trinkets from Europe to Africa, exchanging them for human beings, selling those human beings in the Caribbean, in Central and South America, in Buenos Aires, in Rio de Janeiro, in Caracas, in Mexico City, as well as in Havana, uh, Santo Domingo, and, and San Juan. Uh, and then bringing back to uh, to Europe or to North America, which was the backwater of the Caribbean islands as far as the British Empire was concerned, uh, taking back to Europe some of the products that had been made in uh, the uh, new, uh, 
Americas by those uh, Africans and the remaining indigenous people who were forced to work for the uh, white settlers. And this process began in the 1500s in Central America, in the Caribbean, and in South America, and then in the uh, 1600s, by 1619 or 1620, in North America, which is like 125 years after this process was well underway in the Caribbean and in Central and South America. Wider FM is the student-run radio station at Western Michigan University. Along with the Western Herald and Western Herald Video, Wider is part of the WMU Student Media Group and it's supported in part through donations. If you'd like to donate to the station, please click on our button on the website online at widrfm.org. As you have traveled and, and as you have engaged different cultures, you know, what can we learn about the African worldview of religion um, that will empower us in our own Black communities today? So what I mean is, you know, as we look at the African worldview of religion, what is it about that that can empower us in our own Black communities today? I I think that the same way that it was possible to uh, come together around uh, our shared uh, work experience and our shared uh, ethical principles in the Caribbean in order to abolish slavery ourselves. We didn't wait for anybody to emancipate us or to abolish slavery for us. We abolished slavery ourselves with our own tools, with our own uh, organizations, with our own institutions. Uh, Those those efforts required uh, policies of alliances. And in order to have a policy of alliance, you need to decide again, uh, as we had, as our ancestors had done in Africa, we need to decide who are our friends and who are our enemies. Not all our skin folk are our kin folk. And just because you're in the neighborhood doesn't mean that you're part of the family of the exploited and the oppressed, especially once we recognize that there are also black and brown exploiters and black and brown oppressors. So our our coalitions and our alliances and our collaborations need to be established on the basis of what we do and who we do it for, and who profits from the conditions under which we're forced to to live every day, those are not our friends. Our our friends are are the other people who are exploited and who are forced to work in, in conditions similar to the ones under which we are forced to work, regardless of where in the world they are. We have more in common with other exploited people in Asia and in uh, Australia and in uh, Africa and in Latin America that we do with other people who speak our language or have physical features similar to ours or who are from the same gender that we are or who speak the same language that we do. Those are not the basis 
on which alliances, efficient and successful alliances, have been built either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or in the Quran or in the history of, of people who have freed themselves in Africa or in uh, the African diaspora. One of, one of the greatest thinkers in Africa in the 20th century is a man from Guinea-Bissau named Amilcar Cabral. And, and he uh, repeated throughout his short life that the, on, the only thing that was important is that we needed to abolish exploitation, which means we need to abolish any system where people are both forced against their wishes to work for free, whether it's all of the day or part of the day. And in a system where there's no profit without unpaid work, uh, it's, it's time we ask ourselves whether people who allegedly follow the commandments and uh, tell themselves that they don't believe in stealing, which is something that's in the commandments, uh, unpaid work is theft. And in, in an economic system that's based on profit and, pri and private property, that is theft. The, private, the privatization of, of common land is theft. The privatization of unpaid work, the profits from unpaid work is theft. So how can anybody who, who is a, a merchant or involved in a private enterprise say that he or she is following the principles of being a good Christian? No, no, that's great. That's great. What, um, thank, thank you so much for that. One, one thing that I heard you say or that you alluded to is that shared tradition of struggle. And if we can kind of recognize whether we're in Los Angeles or Chicago or um, Barcelona or South Africa, if we can kind of recognize that shared tradition of struggle that we all face, that might be the starting point to, to come together. That might be the starting point to, to unite on a on a very basic human level. And then when we do that, I, I think I think when we do that, then that's when communities can share in, in not only just wisdom and faith, but in moving ahead. I think that's very important. I can I can give an example to illustrate uh your your most recent point in in the effort to abolish uh, enslavement in Haiti, which took place between 18, excuse me, between 1791 and 1804. Uh, there was a, a, a conflict between the practitioners of a religious ritual from Nigeria which is the equivalent of Santeria or, or Vudum, and the Muslims who, who had been brought to, to what is today called Haiti. And the Muslims would insist that the uh, Yorubas from Nigeria needed to convert to Islam, and the Nigerians would say that the Muslims needed to convert to, to Vudum or Santeria. And 
And while that was going on, they they couldn't organize their uh, institutions in order to abolish slavery. They couldn't organize their economic institutions. They couldn't organize their cultural institutions. They couldn't organize their military self-defense institutions. But once, but once they incorporated the the Muslim deity. Allah, into the pantheon of the Nigerian Orichas, that is, the saints, once they made Allah the most important deity in the uh, pantheon of the uh, Nigerian saints, then they could collaborate, then they could work together in the economic self-sufficiency uh, institutions, in the cultural self-sufficiency institutions, and in the military self-sufficiency institutions. And, and once, once the uh, Muslims accepted that they were part of this coalition, then they, then they worked together and then they became free. Wow, that's powerful. No, that's, that's powerful. <laughs> wow. So whatever are the obstacles, to to unity, we can if if the uh, if the goal is to overcome the obstacles in order to achieve self emancipation and self liberation, then we can a- arrive at some synthesis, following Hegelian dialectics or or Greek dialectics, whatever you you prefer. Hey, this is Wyatt reminding you not to drink and drive. Alcoholic consumption while driving reduces function of the brain, impairs your thinking, reasoning, and muscle coordination. Driving after drinking can be very deadly. Instead, plan a safe ride home with a designated driver, or call a sober friend to pick you up. This has been a message from 89.1 Wider FM online at widrfm.org. When the civil rights movement decided that voting was more important than uh, equal pay for equal work, and when... uh, uh, the social, the civil rights movement decided that it was more important to uh, be inside the institutions that were uh, trying to diversify and I- include uh, people of color in the ruling classes and in the decision making. That was that seemed to be more important than uh, getting uh, housing uh, segregation uh, ended and getting. Uh, health uh, segregation ended and getting the uh, uh, salaries to be uh, more democratic and the distribution of wealth to be more democratic uh, to the point where today over three quarters of the people of color that live in the United States are economically worse off than they were in the 1960s. Wow, wow. Um, <laughs> you've been saying some great stuff. Um, with with very few exceptions, there are exceptions like uh, James H. Cohn, like Malcolm X, like Gayrod Wilmore, like Albert Kleeg, like Jeremiah Wright, and like Aubrey Hendricks, who's a personal friend of mine, mm-hmm. uh, who've been uh, rare African American exceptions in the in the proposal and in the practice of liberation theology. No, that's but in most good. but in most American seminaries those are not the readings and the official courses. 
No, not not at all. And I think that's what we're missing. Um, and those great scholars that you just talked about, you know, earlier we were talking about how people of African descent have resisted and used their ways to resist the dominant culture. And intellectually, when we talk about resistance, uh, such brilliant scholars and writers and thinkers like uh, Dr. James Cone and, um, you know, Aubrey Hendricks and Toni Morrison, all of those people have used the power of the pen and writing and thinking as a way to resist. Um, and I think that is uh, very, very important for us to understand. One of the things, one of the few things that I learned from James Baldwin is that if you want to get in the freedom train, you have to be willing to pay the price of the ticket. <laughs> and most and most oppressed and exploited people in North America expect somebody else to pay the price of their ticket. And when integration has failed and when assimilation has failed and when uh, the idea of we're all in this together uh, shows its ugly face, uh, what is the alternative? When everything else has failed, what is it that we're going to do to emancipate ourselves instead of waiting for the city council or the county commission or the state government or the federal government to emancipate us? When When is it that we start to build our own economic, cultural, financial, housing, health institutions so that we can take care of each other, like the Nation of Islam has done, like Malcolm X was proposing, like Nat Turner was proposing, like uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright proposes in South Side of Chicago, like Albert Kleeg was proposing in, in Detroit. You know, when we look at history and we look at, you know, Black history in America, we can't seem to come together. Like there's this disunity amongst us and even in the black community where we are still, you know, not united. We still cannot come together, whether it's education, whether it's politics, there's always these factions. There's always, you know, these disagreements where we need to fight for if nothing else, unity. I think if nothing else, we need to come together. Listen, we're living in a day and age where we have Black millionaires, we have access to this and access to that. But at the base bottom, it's hard for Black folks to come together, no matter what class, no matter what religion, and work together. Our children are suffering. Our, our babies are dying. And, right, and here, right here in Kalamazoo, Pastor Southern, yeah. uh, the, the indices of uh, infant mortality death among black children is almost at the same levels as it is in West Africa. <coughs> wow. And I, don't, and I don't see too many people being uh, uh, in, involved in trying to uh, change the material conditions that causes uh, those children to die. Let, let me make a couple of suggestions about how to address the, this uh, concern over uh, unity that, that you just expressed. 
I think it's important to ask ourselves a few questions. What is What are the material causes of this uh, problem? What what are the historical causes of this problem? Who who profits economically from the uh, conflict of interest between rich people of color and working class people of color? Who benefits from from that? Who are our allies? Our allies are. If you're a working class, your allies are not rich people. Your allies are other workers other people who do the same kind of work that you do or other people who are unemployed because the employers uh, invest in uh, robots or invest in information technology and how can we come together with other working people who have the same economic uh, interests and have the same interest in democratizing the way decisions are made and a third question that we seldom ask ourselves with regards to unity is how have people in other parts of the world who have the same problems achieved unity among the workers and among the unemployed and among the youth and among the women against the wealthy, against those who profit from the conditions under which we're forced to live. And what once they come together, what did they do to emancipate themselves? What is it that we know about how people in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Asia have achieved this? Once they've created their own institutions. And and what is it that we can learn from those experiences in order to adapt them in the present? And what kind of educational experiences and what kind of educational processes do we invent in order to share that information with each other? We use we use words the same way our slave masters and employers have taught us to use words for centuries. Democracy, for example, what does that mean? In, in Southwest Michigan, what does democracy mean in a region of this state, which is among the five most une economically unequal regions in the United States. In Southwest Michigan, where proportional to the size of cities like Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids, there are more billionaires here than there are in Gross Point. In the eastern part of the state, which is supposedly the richest part of the state, no, and how do, yeah. how, how, do we, how do we challenge the assumptions in the way this uh, economic regime is organized. No, that's good. No, that's that's good. And I think those are important. Those are important steps that we need to consider uh, as we, you know, as we deal with liberation and freedom and and democracy. <laughs> you know, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. But the reality is <laughs> when you turn on the news or look on your, on your iPhone, there's so much social injustice and uh, inequality in our world and especially in Kalamazoo. Well, if, if, if we understand that in order to have political democracy, in order for the vote to be worth anything, we have to have economic democracy. And if we uh, come to grips with the fact that here in Kalamazoo, for example, to have economic democracy means 
that a, a living wage is $25 an hour in order just to address the basic needs of every family in, in the city, and people are settling for less than $25 an hour, and they think that, that that's progress. It reminds me of what Malcolm X said about pr progress. That means that if you have a, a nine-inch shank, nine shank sticking in the back of your ribs and somebody takes it out three inches, that's not progress. It's not progress to settle for uh, $15 an hour when you're still $10 short in order just to satisfy the basic needs of a dignified life. The Western Herald, Western Herald Video, and 89.1 Wider FM make up the WMU Student Media Group. We are supported in part through donations. If you would like to donate to the station, please click on the button on our website online at widrfm.org. Do you think faith leaders in a faith community have a responsibility to speak against economic injustices and social injustices? Do you think our faith leaders are called to action when it comes to seeing those inequalities in our community, whether they be economic or political? Uh, I'm, I'm the son of a Methodist bishop who's a senior bishop in my country. And uh, I often lecture in the uh, National Seminary in Puerto Rico whenever I go visit my uh, family. And one of the things that I discuss in my presentations there is precisely in response to this question that have, you have just uh, raised. One, one of the few incidents in the New Testament that is covered by all the Gospels is what happened uh, in the uh, temple in Jerusalem when uh, Jesus expelled the money changers. And those people who consider themselves disciples of Jesus and who consider themselves people who follow what Jesus did, not what he said, but what he did, uh, need to ask themselves, what is it that we do as organized communities of faith in order to get the money changers out of the temple and in order to end the, uh, the present-day version of the sacrifices of animals? Uh, Jesus didn't sacrifice any animals when he was healing people. And what, so what is it that we do in order to have good hospitals where people can uh, go in, where everybody can get uh, free medical attention? Another, another of the few, very few incidents in the Gospels that is agreed upon by all the uh, Gospels is what Jesus uh, replied in answer to the question about whether we should pay taxes to Rome. And, and I encourage the people that are listening to the, this podcast to ask themselves, what's the 21st century adaptation of that lesson? No, that's good. That's good. What do you, what do you think that is? I think the, the lesson is that if the, the, the land, which is what, uh, Aubrey Hendricks says is in his writings is is the issue of of uh, the the principle of the zealots political party which 
Jesus had quite a few zealots in his organization, is that if the land belongs to the children of God, the children of God are are all of those who work, not not those who profit from wage theft, not those who profit from land theft. And if the uh, uh, coinage that the Romans impose on on the colonized uh, say that that the Caesar is is a god, uh, we don't have to pay taxes. I'm I'm just quoting uh, Professor Hendricks, and I'm also quoting from a book uh, by a professor in the University of California named Reza Aslan. No, that's powerful. That's good. But that's it's, not, good. it's not my job to, to preach. Now, just to kind of cap off our conversation, um, you know, we talked about a lot today What's the central place of faith in our communities as we, you know, as we look at what's going on in our world today, as you look at the course of just the history of our our continent and our world from your travels in um, Dakar um, and other parts of Africa, can you speak about just the, the centrality of faith? faith it could be as resistance it could be um, empowerment what is your understanding of faith and how should it move us from you know being complicit to actually advocating for rights i i think it's important to compare what uh martin luther did with what Thomas Munzer did. These are, these are both people who had to choose whether to be on the side of the landlords or to be on the side of the landless. And Martin Luther chose to be on the side of the landlords and Thomas Munzer chose to be on the side of the landless. And each one of them had a different understanding about who were God. And I think it's the responsibility of every person who uh, is called upon to follow the example of Jesus to choose. What did Jesus choose? Did he chose? Did he choose to be on the side of the landlords and on the side of the Romans, or did he choose to be on the side of the colonized and on the side of the exploited? And to, to, to inform what we do by what we believe. But we need to, to choose a side. We can't be in, in the middle like the belly button, which is And useful. in this time of constant economic and military and cultural conflict, we can't uh, stand on the sidelines. There's, there's a recording of which has informed a, a lot of what I've said today in a live concert by Harry Belafonte in Carnegie Hall. And I encourage your listeners to to go look for that uh, record. But he was, Harry Belafonte was asking the audience to sing with with him. And the the orchestra was going one way 
and the audience was going another. And in the middle of the song, Harry Belafonte stopped the concert, and he said, "No, wait, wait a minute. We ha we have to be together." And he was talking to the musicians, because if we're not together, the audience is going to trample us to death. And that that call for unity is based on the ethical principle that the workers have to march together. We may not all be in the same boat, but if we're paddling in the same direction, we're we're working together to to build the kingdom of God here on earth. No, that that's that's powerful. And you know, you speak of music, um, and I'm I'm thinking of John Coltrane, especially a love supreme, because uh, we're talking about faith and unity. <laughs> And being resilient, um, and I know jazz music is a music of resistance. And when we listen to John Coltrane, not only do we hear a deep spirituality, um, not only do we kind of hear just a deep resonance of unity, but a, a, a strength, a confidence in the side that we're gonna pick whether it's the side of the oppressed or the oppressor. And I think the richness of uh, the African-American experience here uh, in the U.S. is what we've been able to produce out of our experiences. Um, namely, um, I'm talking right now about jazz music and just our cultural artifacts speaks volumes about our resistance just our cultural artifacts. And if we could just deal with that, if we can deal with the Harry Belafontes and the John Coltrane's and Aretha Franklin's, then maybe, maybe, just maybe we could see a little light ahead. Because it, it, it's, our, it's our artists and our poets and our singers that, that force us to reach for this faith and beckon us and call us to reach for this faith even beyond what we see. And, and you, you know, when you mentioned Harry Belafonte, it struck a chord in me um, because I'm just thinking of that time and that era, especially, you know, in the 50s and 60s, where even the Black arts movement and the Black arts, they really pushed us to a deeper consciousness of our spirituality and our blackness well the examples that that i have i don't know very much about john coltrane even though cornell west mentions him practically every time that he speaks in public and i have a great deal of respect for professor west he's he's part of that intellectual uh lineage that we mentioned earlier of malcolm x and gerald wilmore and Al albert Cleek. But I do know about the red and the black Seminoles in Florida that defeated the uh, American armies three times. And I do know about the Maroons in Dismal Swamp in Virginia. And I do know about the Republic of Jones in, in Mississippi that defeated the, the uh, Confederate army, like the Apaches and the Comanches did against the American slavers in uh, occupied Mexico, which is Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado and, and California. 
and these these are examples as well of people who who came together against their enemies based on their their vision and their understanding of a of a better world and and unless we have an alternative of another way of organizing society organizing the the production of our needs and organizing the distribution of the profits and creating universal health care and desegregated housing uh resistance is not enough unless we have uh, an alternative vision of society of mm-hmm. all of it the the education system the uh healthcare system the housing the transportation the decision making in the next 10 or 15 years african americans and latinos are going to be the majority in this country and there's no university in the united states that's preparing the graduates for the demographic and linguistic inversion English is going to be a minority language in this country in the next 10 or 15 years. And the United States is going to either look like South Africa and it's apartheid system. Uh, politically, the United States is already an economic uh, apartheid system or it will be democratic. But who has any an inkling of what an economic democracy would look like? How many of the people who are listening to you uh, have participated in the election of their school principal when they were in high school or in university in the election of their department chair or the election of their dean or the election of the provost or the election of the university president? None of the people who are listening have ever seen any of that because these are not democratic institutions. But when they graduate, they're expected not just to uh, talk about democracy, but they're expected to practice something that they've never seen. When in the Methodist Church, a bishop is elected, who participates in that election? Do all the ministers in the conference participate in that election? Do all the deacons participate in the election of the uh, local minister? Only in the Baptist Church. So, so how do we talk about democracy if we don't practice it? daily no that's good that's good my final question can you just give us a few parting words and uh ways to move forward um you know as a as a people of faith um just some you know just some parting words or some remarks about this conversation on how we can move forward well i suggest that we devote a lot of our study time to (coughs) investigating what liberation theology uh, practitioners have done in Central America, in South America, and in Africa. In Africa, people like Steve Biko of the Black Consciousness Movement, and in Central America, people like Father Ernesto Cardenal, who worked with the Sandinistas, or people like Frei Beto in Brazil, or Camilo Torres, in in Colombia, what is it that these people wrote about and what was it that they did in order to put their faith into practice, in order to organize the kingdom of God here on earth? And once and once we do that study, because the United States, thank God, is not the only country in the world. There's at least 204 other countries where people have liberated themselves and, and very few of those processes went through the ballot 
You can check out WiderFM.org for all things related to the station, blog posts, and resources for COVID-19. WiderFM.org. And once we have that uh, information about what people in other countries have done, then the second part of that conversation here in the United States needs to be how do we adapt those experiences of self-emancipation to the difficulties that we have here, difficulties that are going to increase in the next four or five years because this economic crisis and economic depression that we're in is going to uh, require the employers to invest in robotics and in information technologies, which means that in the next uh, five to six years, half of the jobs that existed in 2013 are going to disappear. And as the evictions and the foreclosures and the uh, dispossession in increases in the United States in the midst of this health crisis, when there's more people homeless in the, in the street, what is it that people of faith are going to do in the midst of this economic and cultural and military and political crisis in order to live their faith on a daily basis? How do we adapt the examples of what's happened in other countries requires that we study and that we uh, create book clubs and that we create public uh, places where we can talk to each other about these things. And that's why I'm very happy to have collaborated in this conversation with you. Wow. Wow. Dr. Santiago, I just want to, I just want to, from the bottom of my heart, just thank you for um, just taking time out of your busy schedule just to talk with me, with us. I hope this is not the last time that we talk. I hope this is not the last time that we're able to just have a conversation on um, some of the issues that matter within um, our faith community. I look forward to just um talking with you further and gleaning from your wisdom. Um, let me just close out by thanking um, Ms. Taylor West um, and the Lewis Walker Institute for uh, just for the opportunity to host these conversations uh, on faith and community. Um, I think we have a couple of guests that have been um, listening to us and are plugged in. I just wanted to recognize them as well. But again, lastly, let me just thank you so much. And I appreciate all of the wisdom that you have given us um, in this conversation. So thank you so much. Um, just, just one last thing. R race and ethnicity is not about folklore. It's not about ritual. It's not about uh, the, the meals or the way we, we dress. Race and ethnicity has to do as I mentioned earlier, by what we do every day to produce our basic needs and to make sure that everyone, regardless of their place of origin or language, has access to all the resources and all the services. So thank you, Dr. Santiago. I think that's it. I think that's it. I hope. Um... Yeah. And thank, thank you to our panelists and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the First Wired podcast of the semester only on 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. Um, as Reverend said, we'll be having um, two more discussions after this one. So make sure at the same time, so make sure to tune in um, 
as we will be having more riveting content.